Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the postmodern podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 4th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University and McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And I'm joined, as always, by the impeccable Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week we have a special episode of Twill recorded live at the 39th Annual Health Law Professors Conference organized here at Boston University by the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. A big welcome to the pod and a big welcome to some great friends. Hi, uh, my name is Nicholas Bagley. I'm a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School. I'm Rachel Sachs, currently a fellow at the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School, but soon to be joining the faculty at WashU School of Law. And I'm Ross Silverman, a professor uh, at the Indiana University Fairbanks School of Public Health and Indiana University McKinney School of Law. And I'm Ed Silverman. I run the Pharmalot blog for Stat News, and I've been following the pharmaceutical industry for 20-plus years, uh, including many legal topics. So our conversation today is about social media, both how we consume it and how we create it. Uh, The field is huge, and I think uh, we'll all have a sigh of relief when I say we're not going to try and cover the social media we're all trying to leave, like LinkedIn and Facebook. But rather, we're going to concentrate on blogs, on um, uh, small uh, uh, text, although ever-increasing numbers of, of characters allowed in things like Twitter and Snapchat, and look at some of the sort of more multimedia uh, plays like podcasts. So, uh, Ed, as the, as the non-health law professor here, but someone who does this for a living, how do you find law professors to act as commentators or to get quotes for work you do? And as someone who hopefully is looking in this academy uh, rather than being uh, navel-gazing as we are, how should we as a sort of sub-profession, if you like, be approaching social media? Well, the way I find uh, folks to speak with is um, sometimes uh, serendipity and sometimes um, hard hunting. I, I get a lot of things, in no particular order, I get a lot of things sent to me. Sometimes I'm, I'm signing up voluntarily for lists. Uh, blog posts from law firms and law schools. But also I get a lot of things sent me because over time people find me and I squirrel these things away. I like to read as much as I can um, and I'll, I'll save things because then I can do a search in the future and I never know what I've missed or forgotten I've read. So uh, there's a lot of, lot of stuff out there and I actually do look at it because I spent a lot of time looking at um, issues pertaining to health law. So, um, and, but I also will over time read what other people write, of course, and they'll quote people. So I might file that away, uh, as well. Um, I try to send out emails when, when I think of it just to let people know I exist and keep myself on their radar. Sometimes, um, I just do happy hunting. Um, I'm scrambling. I need somebody to talk to. And I go to Google and I type in the words I think will turn up someone who knows something about this. Mostly I get lucky and they do. Sometimes they don't. I'm happy to say most of them return my emails or calls. Um, as to your second question, how to, how to view all of this, um, I, I think it, it, it must, I'm not in your shoes, but it must feel a bit like a barrage of, of information, of course. But um, it, it's a great, if, if you can find the way to filter all of this, it's, there's a, I, I'm sure you know this already, but there's a great opportunity to really fine tune and expand your knowledge because there is so much circulating. And trying to harness it appropriately, which is tricky, uh, and I can't say I've mastered that, but to, to attempt that at least can, can 
provide a very good stream of knowledgeable information and uh, contacts as, as well, of course. Great. Thank you. So, uh, uh, Rachel, you still insist on calling yourself a junior scholar. Having read your stuff, I, 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 I'm not sure I actually agree with that uh, characterization. But as you approach social media as a junior scholar, you clearly have different sort of time pressures and issues that are uh, impacting your work and how you can spend your time on what perhaps some of us think is almost a recreational activity. So at this point in your career, what's sort of driving your choices and, and how you approach social media? Yeah, so so thank you for the, the note about my scholarship, but I do think I have a lot to learn about being a, a good scholar, a good teacher um, and colleague. And so blogging on top of that is is quite a challenge, and there are some people who who don't think that the calculus for junior scholars makes sense. But for me, it has been a very good decision, I think, and, and I would say that it helps me in two ways. Um, first, as I pursue my scholarly goals. So um, I found it helpful to blog about my own scholarship or recent rules or cases um, that might relate to them. Um, and then another sort of process-oriented benefit is that it helps me practice the skill that is writing. Um, The more I write, the more natural it feels. And that's, I think, important for junior scholars. Um, And especially on days where I'm focused on teaching and I want to spend a little bit of time doing something productive, but I'm not fully in article writing mode yet. This is a good way um, to keep that skill. Um, And then second, blogging, I think, is helpful for junior scholars to become part of the broader scholarly conversation. Um, So right now I blog uh, for the Petrie Flom Center at Bill of Health, which I've been lucky enough. I I didn't start from scratch. I've already got a built-in sort of readership. Um, And so I've been invited to blog for other outlets, both field-specific and more general. Um, I've been quoted in the media. People have found me through the blogs. Um, I've been invited to give talks not just at at law schools, but also to physicians and, and scientists, the people whose Um, work enriches my own in so many ways. and then some of these certainly have scholarly benefits, but but getting my name out there and talking with interesting people, I think, has just been so wonderful. So I, too, blog at Bill of Health and pretty much only blog at Bill of Health now, other than the odd health affairs piece. But Frank, you still blog through many outlets, and I wonder how you uh, handle that calculus and make decisions as to what goes where and when. Well, great question, Nick. And yeah, I have had, been on this blog called Conquering Opinions for 10 years now, amazing enough, done about a thousand posts there, also on this blog called Balkanization, um, and you know, various venues you know, may want content. There's always people that want content, <laughs> so that's a good thing. Um, I think that in terms of blogging, what's really important is that you're aware of the metrics in the community and the audience, because I think without that type of awareness, it's very easy to get just sort of dragged this way or that by one or another person's uh, demands. I think that right now what I think is really important for me is the synergy between the blogs and Twitter because essentially with the well-chosen hashtag and app mention, you can make sure that certain micro-communities in an area of expertise are alerted to your work that ordinarily might miss it. So I think that's the really important synergy right now. And Nick, you uh, you blog for one of the more famous law or law and economics blogs, uh, Incidental Economist. Um, what drives those kinds of choices and what, what, what drives the, the, the choice? 
choice is the kinds of things you post when you're in a sort of a somewhat of a vertical space, if you like. So one of the great things about being a law professor is the ability to write about stuff that nobody cares about that day. Um, and one of the real downsides of being a law professor is that often the stuff you write that doesn't pertain to that particular day never gets read by anybody. And so there's a, a real trade-off between sort of being sort of relentlessly academic and being attached to the real world. And I find one of the great things about being a law professor is people have questions that law professors from time to time can answer. And I like answering those questions. I enjoy the discipline of digging into a legal problem and trying to figure out what the right answer is. So for me, blogging was a way to respond to people who were saying, what, what is the answer? What is the, legal, the right legal outcome here? So I got started blogging when the, the Obama administration delayed the employer mandate in the Affordable Care Act. And people said, is this legal? And I said, oh, wow, I can answer that. <laughs> um, or I think I can. And, and, and as I became sort of, I started sort of down that path, people started coming to me with more questions about questions about, about what the administration was doing, in particular with the Affordable Care Act, but not only the Affordable Care Act. And I found that unless I wrote it down, I actually didn't understand the legal problem that they were posing. I hadn't dug into it enough to be able to come up with a sensible answer. So blogging was, for me, a way to come to resolution on these questions that might have otherwise puzzled me. Um, and the fact that I had an audience that I had to be attentive to gave me the kind of discipline to, to write thoughtfully and effectively, hopefully, for a broader public. Um, so that's allowed me to stay attached to real world happenings apart from what my research is, is looking at. What I found surprising and great about blogging for me has been the way it feeds back on the research that I do. So much of the research I do today is either with co-authors I would never have met had it not been for the blogging or is related to, it kind of builds on work that I started doing on the blog where I had legal questions to sort of pull, to, pull through and that ended up being parts like building blocks of larger pieces. Um, so I found it very rewarding. I don't think blogging is for everybody. Um, it does take up a great deal of time. And I think I'm constantly reassessing the balance between my, my core academic writing and my blogging and wondering if, I've, if I'm doing too much of one or the other. Um, and especially when teaching is thrown into the mix, it can get quite hairy. Uh, but I think that's healthy. I think over the course of a career, you're likely to see blogging be either more or less important to what it is you hope to achieve, depending on where you're at and what your other priorities are. So several answers then. We, clearly, there's sort of self-promotional aspects to this. There, there are branding aspects. There's, there's the intersection and involvement with media. There's being part of an academic community, a broader academic community. And there's the interaction between uh, sort of our long-form work and our short-form work. But, Russ, where, where else does, uh, does social media come in as far as, or as, far as teaching? I think it could be an effective way to bring what's happening right now into the classroom. Um, I think if you can work things like Twitter, um, uh, things like blogging into your classroom setting, uh, I found it, uh, on, on the one hand, echoing some of the other speakers, uh, first it helps you clarify your thinking in a way that makes what can be some very complex uh, issues more digestible. Um, the, the, you know, the uh, uh, kind of the tyranny of the 140 word or the 140 character uh, structure has you rethinking, rewriting, and it actually, I think, has, has transformed the way that I write generally now. I, I, can, I, I can write things in a far more uh, structured and, and, and concrete way uh, than previously. 
Uh, as far as the teaching is concerned, one of the things that I will end up doing is, uh, for example, through Twitter, you can create lists. And I will make uh, lists available. For, I have an undergraduate class. And some of these students are just being introduced to the health system generally. And so not only are they trying to learn that there are different kinds of hospitals, that there are all these different types of health practice uh, practitioners, and uh, let alone Medicare and Medicaid, et cetera. But then you want them to be able to connect what they're learning to what's happening in the news. And so uh, I've been able to create different lists of different news sources or journalists or journals and place them all into a stream and have as assignments in the class reflections based upon what they're reading and bringing that back to the learning objectives for the course. And so I found that to be a really helpful way. In many ways, it takes me back, you know, being here at Boston University, it's where I graduated from law school 21 years ago, uh, to, to sitting in one of my mentors, Fran Miller's class, which started every class. And she said, let's take what's in the newspaper today and let's talk about that. Um, and this is kind of my way of doing that with with my students. So Ed, you've uh, you've built a career in social media, uh, whereas I guess we, well, with some notable exceptions, such as my friend to my right, <laughs> Frank here, we tend to be more hobbyists, I guess. As people here listening, as people in the audience are thinking about how they want to get involved in social media and maybe have more presence, do some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, what advice do you have as to sort of the business of social media? What are the what are the places where you think people should be spending time on at the moment? Or maybe what areas do you think are, are, some, are perhaps not as hot as they once were? I launched Farmalot 10 years ago this uh, coming January. And at the time, and, and just to remind the, uh, the listeners, I'm a journalist. So I was another guy in a big newsroom. The newspaper industry was already eroding. I saw blogging as I likened myself to a frog finding another lily pad. And so I made the leap. And at the time, 10 years ago, blogging was a new pursuit and a new concept. It's it's changed, I think, in some ways since then, at least for me. I think, but I think some of the basic principles are still the same. If, if someone is considering that now, again, I for me, um, this is a full-time pursuit. So I, I imagine for, for many, it would not be. But in any event, some of the goals should be the same, which is to have a focus, a niche, uh, something that's very specific, something you feel strongly about, something you know about, something you like to talk about. Because if you like to talk about it, it's probably a lot easier to write about it. And in fact, your writing might want to resemble the way you talk. Well, maybe not the way you talk, but maybe the p way people on NPR talk <laughs> uh, or this podcast, uh, which, which is a, a friendly, homespun, but sophisticated and informed sort of dialogue. And that kind of approach, I think, can help you win an audience and also convey the sense that you have an expertise and an insight to share. And, and if you can do that, and it helps to have a catchy name for your blog, or at least a, a catchy phrase, um, you can brand yourself and become a familiar and reliable voice uh, or font of wisdom for the folks who uh, are looking for that sort of thing. It, it is changing, though. I think the idea of making it a business is harder. I'm not sure that even blogging resembles what it once did, because long before we had blogs, we used to have things in magazines called commentary. And that, that's sort of what blogs were and um, still are often, but, in, but they're taking on 
sort of bite-sized newsier tones these days simply because the nature, the commoditized nature of information and content has changed so much. So you have to decide if you want your, your blog to really be a vehicle for your ideas and, and ambitions apart from cold, hard uh, career and business-oriented pursuit. I think that's so right. And I wanted to just add to this question of branding and personal identity, which I think is, and this gets to some of Ross's points too, which is um, I find that I've developed two Twitter accounts. One has been really successful, which is just my name, uh, and it gets about a million impressions a month, and it's about tech dystopia and law. (laughs) Because there's sort of a lot of people that want to read about technology and law. That's a much larger community online. The other one called Health PI is much less followed, much, but it's where I carve out a distinctive identity on health policy, um, where I, I sort of question a lot of the dominant themes of health policy. And for me, these two accounts are really important because I think you can't let yourself be drawn into the maw of constantly thinking about what are my stats? How do I get more followers? How do I get more engagement, et cetera? You've got to always have this sort of like balance. And that's one way I achieve that. But I think that on the other hand, um, and Nick asked me to talk about some of these newer things like Snapchat, et cetera. One problem that I've had over the past five or six years is I try to get my students engaged on either blogging or Twitter And it's really hard to get it to take. And I found some things that are like um, rubrics where they try to explain step by step what makes for a good Twitter account, what makes for a good list, what makes for good blogging, et cetera. I may deploy that more, but I think we've all also got to think as Gen Z comes up, as the younger millennials come up, how do we meet them where they're at? It seems like right now where a lot of them are at is on something like Snapchat, which is ultimately, interestingly enough, for those who think that the internet is pureeing our brains and is reducing our attention, like what Sherry Turkle and Nicholas Carr in the Shallows and Sven Burkertz and the Gutenberg Allergies, if you think that, you might even be happy about something like Snapchat because it tries to give a more unified story of what someone is doing over a day, as opposed to the blooming, buzzing confusion of a Twitter feed. So I think what's really interesting is sometimes the newest media can actually appeal to an older sensibility of wanting more coherence and narrative in a media framework. Yeah, I think to to add to that, I think um, as we switch from desktop to mobile, I think that's informing a lot of the changes Mm. here. I I think it's, it's harder to read a blog post on a on an iPhone, but 140 characters um, is something that's uh, highly digestible or something like the Snapchat stories and, uh, and so on. So let's broaden it out. How do you get started in social media? <laughs> Ross, I mean, where do you, where do you start? You, do you choose one platform and then just go with it? And, and what platform and, and what do you do to, to get going? These are not often transparent. No, it's, it's not. And this is, you know, in a lot of ways, reminiscent of, you know, the, well, so how did you become a health you know, law professor kind of questions? Because I think every one of us does have a, a different pathway that we've taken to get to the point that we're at, you know, because I started blogging in 2001. And when I started doing it, I, I did it under a pseudonym. Because for me, there was a concern about, you know, well, you know, watch what you say, watch what you, you know, um, and, and, and that time, you know, it was in the wake of 9-11. And I wanted to have a voice in the process, but not necessarily move into an advocacy role, especially as a junior faculty member. But I don't think I was particularly deliberate. I think I think it, it helps to have a, a framework, as Frank has talked about, and saying, if I'm going to be blogging or tweeting under a particular post that is this going to be my my business 
business side or is this going to be me as a more holistic? And so I'll admit I'm not particularly good at that, uh, at, at keeping those divided. The Because, you know, I will post on the NBA playoffs uh, as well as about what's happening in public health law. And so I do recognize that I'm maybe diluting my brand a bit if you want to use those kinds of Although it was good to see the Warriors all getting vaccinated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's so that's the challenge. Is that if you are, you know, if you're going to become the content expert on something, recognize that you may feel a pressure to either stay in a particular lane or possibly leave out, you know, leave certain things out of your what you might otherwise do, or create another account. Um, but then you get into FOMO issues. <laughs> I agree with with everything Ross has said, and and I've come to it. Um, I think in in different ways. You know, I had Twitter accounts and Facebook and all of that um, for years, but only more recently have I started purposefully using them in sort of a, a more professional way. And so when I came to blogging a couple of years ago, I did it with with a much more purpose behind it. And so tips for people who are getting started would be to, to do the things you're going to do already, but start thinking about it in a more digestible fashion. So when I started, I would, I would do things like blog about um, articles I was planning to read anyway, or thinking about assigning in class, um, or recent cases that I was going to read for um, articles I was working on. And so that allowed me to do, as we've been saying, to to think really clearly about what's going on, to write down my thoughts in a, a way that made sense and to understand what was bugging me about a case, um, but also to do so while accomplishing a task that I was going to do. Anyway, um, and, and the one other thing I would say is that for people who are actually looking to try this out, maybe, I know an outlet where several of us blog bill of health does sometimes feature guest bloggers. So if you do have a particular topic in health law you'd like to, to blog about for a short period of time to see if it's for you, I think you can get in touch with um, Holly and Glenn for more information about that. I think sometimes you you hear these panels and you think to yourself, if you're not blogging every single day and you don't have a Twitter account with 3,000 followers, you're just not hacking it. And I want to emphasize that that the question of whether to do social media for a law professor or really for anybody is a question about what do you want to get out of it and does it suit you? Um, and I think if you want to get tenure, social media is a pretty bad approach. If Thank you. you well, <laughs> it's, it's, it is not the currency of the realm, at least not yet. There can be, it can pay dividends, but it does distract from the work that you're going to be assessed on. And some people don't like the kind of shoot from the hip, get your ideas out there quickly approach that blogging requires. You know, the fact is when I write a blog, it cannot be as thoroughly researched or as thoroughly executed as it is when I write a, a scholarly article. And I'm comfortable with that. I think I get it right more often than I get it wrong, but I do get it wrong sometimes. And for people who can't tolerate that, don't like that, or don't like the moving through a topic quickly, blogging might not be for them. That's okay. It, it, it is it is something you should think about trying because you might surprise yourself. But there are lots of ways to get your ideas out there in the world. This is but one of those ways. Following up on, I, I, again, I think really, really great points uh, by Nick and Rachel. The, I think as a junior person, if you are working to try to build the rigor of your academic habits, I think blogging as contrasted with tweeting, um, I think blogging can be a really valuable way that, again, you know, no word goes wasted. You you may, if you're going to say, I'm going to write 500 words a day, I'm going to write a thousand words a day. You, you can say to yourself, I'm going to write what I write and then figure out which 
areas I'm going to move them into. And so, and I know a lot of people who have kind of built their writing process as, and Aaron Carroll, I understand, is it very much is that way. It's like, I'm going to get a thousand words today. And it may end up in a blog post, and it may end up in a, in a commentary, and it may end up in a research article, but that helps build that rigor. And, and as you're going, you can then supplement it with hyperlinks, or you can supplement it with, you know, core research, or maybe you're going to need to build out some extra paragraph. But I think you can start with some of this type of day-to-day work and build that into medical journal articles, which tend to be shorter and tighter. And then you can build those out into law review type of articles, which can be, you know, the bigger, more philosophical uh, compendia of those issues and then, you know, and, and books and beyond. So you can use it as a, you know, kind of the, the starting point for, for a lot of those different outlets. And I also wanted to add one note, um, just to sort of reinforce the idea of the promise and peril of the, this involvement, which is the biggest plus for me in being involved in blogging and Twitter and social media has been the international community that I've gotten some discussion with and nationally. You know, I've been able to find people that have been really fantastic perspectives that, you know, just from a U.S. perspective, I'd never be exposed to people in Europe, Australia, um, Singapore, etc. But what makes these things hard is that if you leave the comment section open on your blog, you will eventually, if you, to the extent you become popular, you will attract trolls. And I did a review, actually, for the Chronicle of Higher Education of two books on commenting on blogs uh, last year. And, you know, they really documented that these trolls can take a psychological toll. And that's what led me to ultimately shut down comments on one of my blogs. And I, and I see – and I, I think this question of shutting down comments is very controversial. But I think it actually – if you are part of a larger apparatus, you might have this structure and staff in place that you can get rid of them. But on the other hand, if you're not – you also have to wonder about uh, are the trolls funded by certain interests? You know, are you giving people a platform who really are uh, carrying water and you can't understand exactly what they're doing? And I think on Twitter as well, the being able to block people is very important because there's a huge problem of cyber harassment and trolling on Twitter that particularly affects women and people of color. And so knowing the cyber civil rights aspect of this is extremely important. And, you know, it's something that culturally in the U.S., we sometimes fetishize free speech to the point where, you know, anything anyone wants to say is fine. And I think that one of the things we have to really be careful about to develop a robust public sphere is to be able to control this type of interference and noise creation, um, the sort of heckler's veto uh, that comes up so often. I've taken a different approach to the comment section. I mean, I've certainly, again, I'm a journalist, so I'm used to getting darts, arrows, and all sorts of things thrown at me from all directions. And a lot of that's come in the comment sections over the years, which is fine. I'd rather hear something than not, um, even if it's off the wall. And I've had my share of threats as well. But I think that I try to take approach uh, that... Uh, the comment section is like a garden party. And I will periodically remind the uh, folks who show up as if they're small children that if you throw chairs or glasses at someone else, you'll be removed. But I'll give them some rope to hang themselves before I'll take that step. But it's also a good reminder for folks who are very heated and passionate about a topic. I recall... I think it was 08, when antidepressants and lack of side effect uh, data or the side effect data was not uh, being revealed by some companies, FDA warnings were uh, being debated, and this was hotly 
debated on my blog for a while uh, by industry folks, consumers, all sorts of people. And I had to issue that kind of reminder periodically. But I, I find that keeping the comments going, and, and when I had the blog at the Wall Street Journal, certainly there were all sorts of folks showing up, this sort of different orientation often to the comments and the interests that were reflected. But I prefer to keep the comments there because I think ultimately you look, there's a Machiavellian undertone to this. Uh, you, you, if there's more conversation, yes, there's more traffic often enough. But that aside, going back to the, the issue at hand, I think that having the comments open really um, is, is a good way to keep dialogue going. And unless there is a person who throws the chairs in the glasses and you do have to take a step, better to have the conversation than not. Uh, I'm not saying there, there shouldn't be limits, but I, I think keeping the comments on ultimately is a good way to continue to engage in the world and let people know, because also there's a way to make, make new sources, new contacts, and exchange ideas with folks you may not otherwise meet. One of the challenges, I think, and especially from an academic's perspective, is are you going to be an advocate or are you going to be someone who's going to be online to inform and educate? I have done a lot of work in vaccine law and policy, and this is a very heated area where people have some very strong opinions. And I have some colleagues who have taken their social media role as essentially to try to, I think, go more than just engage in dialogue uh, with those with whom they disagree, but to actually serve as an advocate, uh, you know, for certain bills for and and you know, f- uh, as a whistle, perhaps as a whistleblower or pointing out uh, significant problems. And I don't have the bandwidth, just brain-wise, to engage in every one of those debates. You know, I would feel that if I'm doing that work, then I'm I'm out hunting for. things things and I you know and I'm trying you know and and and, and I I see this in my in my Twitter feed I mean, it's just massive hostility, and it just seems to be kind of a you know kind of a Groundhog Day thing that you just see the same arguments over and over and over again, and you have to say is is that how I want to spend my time doing this work? Because I think there you know, there's a great XKCD uh, cartoon that says like you know I'll be right there. Somebody's wrong on the internet, you know, and and so you have that idea of having to fight every one of those fights. I think it's there's there's a lot of temptation and there's a lot of you know you can get a lot of endorphins popping in your brain from the from the high of being in the midst of those things and 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 ultimately though i think it can be dangerous as far as your your productivity as a as a professional so i guess uh, one thing that a podcast lacks is a comment section unless you unless you view that as the show notes or or twitter Although I suppose today could be, given that we have an audience, it could be an exception and we, we, may, we may have comments. But to, uh, to sort of just round this session off and to be true to Professor Sachs's uh, description of this as the most meta tw- episode of Twill ever, um, that we should briefly discuss podcasts. Uh, I don't know whether it's a, a transitional uh, technology, but it does seem to have quite a large growth curve at the moment. There seems to be a lot of interest in, in podcasting, uh, whether that's for just sort of uh, extrinsic reasons like the fact that we have Bluetooth in our cars now and so it's easy to, to stream from our phones and so on. But I guess uh, one of the things that uh, we're sort of breaking a little bit of, of ground here is that this is not a general law pod but is, is very niche and very specialized. And I, I, I wondered whether uh, we think there's going to be sort of room for those kinds of of pods inside the academy or outside 
um, and whether we're going to see some sort of growth in that sort of area. I, I saw recently that uh, Politico just had started Politico Pulse uh, and had Karen DeSalvo on, and I think this is only going to become more common. I think that you're going to see a lot of very important policy folks and other folks that want to have a voice, think tank people, realize this is a relatively quick way to get their ideas out. And that's one of the, the joys of the podcast for me, at least uh, with Twill also. I think uh, we heard earlier this morning, one of the talks talked about the incredible influence of health economists relative to other social scientific experts within the health policy debate. And I think what's so exciting about the health podcast is like we can have on historians, sociologists, other folks, and sort of redefine what is the field and whose voices should be taken seriously in the policy context. And so it's also a way in which, you know, I think just as legal blogging, when it really took off in 2003, 2004, shot a certain number of people to a level of prominence that they never could have really expected from their own, you know, to have achieved simply as scholars. I think that the podcasts are going to bring in a whole bunch of diverse voices in very interesting ways. And I think that's very exciting. I'd liken it to the emergence of the blog whenever that emerged. Um, I mean, everybody now has the potential to be their own radio talk show host about whatever they would like to discuss. And that could be for personal interest. It could be a preferred professional interest, whether it's an individual pursuit or as part of a larger organization. I brought Farmall out to Stat News last year, and we have a podcast. Um, we're trying to develop something just like a lot of other media companies and gain traction with podcasts to see if it can be a separate revenue stream. So there are all sorts of divergent but similar reasons for trying it, and I think it's going to take off, whether it becomes more than uh, an individual pursuit for many individuals is another discussion, I suppose. But like I said at the beginning, we can all be our own radio talk show hosts whenever we want. I'm Diana Winters from IU McKinney. Two questions. If having students write blog posts, whether it is a good idea or what the pros and cons are of making that blog public so that that writing can be used by the students or pointed to for employment purposes, and also if having students follow blogs, which I think Ross talked about, whether there's a way to assess their utilization of that information or whether that's not something we need to watch as professors. One thought to have in mind when you when you think about assigning blogs to students is how is this different from assigning them a short uh, writing project? What, what makes it different or distinctive? One is just signaling to the students that it can be informally written and it can it is meant to be a kind of more informal in tone and that can liberate students to be a little bit more conversational uh, in what they submit to you. Um, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes you want to teach students how to be a little bit more formal. Um, as to whether to make it public, I, I suppose my instinct is that that can be trouble. It, it, you know, the internet is more or less permanent, and people say things in blogs that are, can be intemperate. And one of the real lessons of blogging is how to keep your voice in control, um, because it is so tempting to, to dash something off that you're going to find yourself regretting later. Um, and I'd venture to guess that anybody who blogs for long enough r runs afoul of that, but people can run afoul of it in more or less spectacular ways. Um, so my instinct would be to keep it keep it quiet. On the other hand, once you've kept it um, private, then it's really not blogging. It's just papers that you're sharing among the class. Um, so I think it, I think it's challenging. I have a, um, uh, insight on that. I think from my experience at Seton hall, where we have had a blog for a long time, I think it was called health reform watch for a while. Uh, I mean, now at Maryland, but I, I still follow what's going on at Seton hall. And I would have my students blog, uh, and I would tell them particularly 
this is permanent. This is public. So it's got to be perfect. And you have to perfect a professional voice in this blog post that is like what a partner at a law firm would write. And But that was very labor intensive, right? So I had to go over these things and I had to tell them, wait a second, you know, you sound too casual here. You sound too dismissive here. You sound too ponderous here. You're too, you know, and this, I think, it, it, and ultimately... I stopped doing that because of the labor intensiveness of it. But I do have some success stories of students, for example, who's one of my former students, uh, Jordan Cohen, his blog post explaining what accountable care organizations are, got over 100,000 hits. And he would show it to law firms when he would apply for jobs. And like he, he's, that, he, he's told me, like, bring my story up because it was such an interesting story about pr- uh, creating a professional identity online. And so I think that, you know, as people consider the vagaries of Google, especially in a place that doesn't have the right to be forgotten, one thing you have to remember is that you've got to play offense for your online reputation and not just defense. So if you are constantly playing defense and you don't want to have any online reputation whatsoever, you run the risk of having some bizarre thing totally dominate the Google search results on your name. Whereas if you do create something of a presence that has a professional cast and tone, I think you're in much better stead than if you just sort of let people find whatever they find when they Google you. For me, what I end up scaffolding their writing with are things like how you build your elevator speech. And essentially what a blog might be is you encapsulating a particular issue for somebody who doesn't know very much about these issues. And so the blogging is not a shoot from the hip thing. It's more of an explainer type of a structure. So I think if you can have the uh, the assignment structured to a framework that then can, you know, you can have a rubric um, and you can give them kind of, you know, you know, even like the you know the five paragraph kind of style uh, uh, structure for that. I think I think it can be I think it can be helpful. I do agree. You know, if you get into more of the you know analysis assessment type things, that's where you can get people into into greater trouble. And I think I think you can, it can't be their first blogging. I don't think you know it should probably be the ones that are focused on opinion. I think it should be synthesis. Jason Smith. I'm at uh, California State uh, East Bay. Uh, Professor Smith is my Twitter handle. I was very lucky to grab that. Very. <laughs> um, I guess my question. I, you know, I, I like Twitter. I use Twitter. I thought about blogging and, and the social media. But I think in academia, one thing that's particularly fraught about it, but really interesting about it, is. As junior faculty, we have all these anxieties, right? You want to complain about, oh, I've got to revise and resubmit that third reviewer. But, you know, you, it's a nice way to have a community to sort of say, do you feel this way before you're doing a lecture? Do you feel this way about your right? You know, but how do you use it in a way, because I found I have a lot of colleagues across the country who I've never actually met, that we could talk about all these things, but how can you use social media to do that without projecting all of this? You know, keeping your brand, right? Because you're like, I, you know, I want to be the expert on some particular topic, but at the same time, I want to be. I'd like to make academia more friendly, right? That, that we we all seem very self-possessed publicly, but to sort of share, like we all share the sort of same anxieties, we have the same problems, and social media can be a useful way to sort of have that conversation. I don't do a lot of that, um, and 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 here's why. I think there's a lot of stuff out there in the world that's worth reading. What I can contribute to that is pretty modest. Um, But I think what I can sometimes contribute is legal expertise. When somebody wants to know whether X, Y, or Z is legal, I can hopefully explain that to them in an accurate, fair, even-handed way. 
Um, when it comes to conversations about my social anxieties or professional anxieties, of which I have many, my instinct is that nobody cares um, except my friends and maybe not even them. Um, and so, so, so I don't under, I, I, I have, I've yet to, f and, and this is again, I'm speaking only for myself. I don't see any particular need to burden the world with, with that. Um, but you're right. There are people who want to have a space to have those conversations. I don't know that the blogging is the place where I feel comfortable having that conversation, but that's not to say that part of your brand, part of your brand might be, look, I'm a law professor. We talk about this stuff all the time, but nobody actually comes clean about it. I'd like to put it on the map. And that might be valuable for people. That's not the approach that I've taken. But if you see it, a conversation that is not happening that you think people would be interested in, that might be part of what you bring to the table. So as a, a junior person, I've been conscious to create this divide as well. So I generally um, keep Twitter more um, professional because when I think about why people would would want to follow me or pay attention, it's because I'm I'm sharing information. Maybe I'm sharing a link or um, or I'm offering thoughts on um, a legal question or, or a question as to the research I do. Um, and then I've seen law professors take these kinds of conversations to Facebook. Um, instead, so I think there's often uh, a separation between social social media and professional social media um, in a way that that may be healthy or or maybe not. So when that the Princeton professor recently put out his sort of CV of failure, I don't know if anyone else saw that. It was amazing, right? And it got so much attention. And so maybe we should be having conversations like this. But but as a junior person, that that is the balance I have chosen to strike. And on that note, that was this week's the week in health law. Um, so. Uh, Let's thank the panelists. Nicholas underscore Bagley uh, at Twitter, and you can read me at The Incidental Economist. At R.E. Sachs on Twitter, and you can read me at Bill of Health. I am at PHLU on Twitter and occasionally at Bill of Health. On Twitter, it's at Farmalot, and on the internet, it's statnews.com forward slash Farmalot forward slash. And it's at Frank Pasquale and at HealthPI. At Nicholas Terry, also on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Mm -hmm.